Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello there, Al Murray here. Just before this episode of We Have Ways of Making You Talk gets going, I just wanted to let you know that this is, in fact, our 700th episode of the podcast. Uh, all those years ago when James and I got going on this, not for one moment did we imagine we'd still be doing it all this time later, but it's really thanks to you, our listeners, for lending us your ears that's enabled us to get to episode 700 and to be still bursting with more ideas and more interesting things to talk about in the War Waffle setting. Uh, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode 700. Actung, Actung, welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, James Holland, and with John McManus in St. Louis, Missouri. And we're joined today by a very special guest, um, a former soldier and paratrooper. Is that right, James? James Fenelon. That's right. Um, and also, latterly, an author and historian. And you write, James, about those forgotten airborne heroes. You know, we all know about Easy Company. We all know about the 101st. And we all know quite a lot about the 82nd Airborne. But we don't know so much about the 17th Airborne. Uh, and you wrote about them in, that, uh, in, in Four Hours of Fury, all about the crossing of the Rhine. And then... One we're talking about today, which is my new heroes, um, 11th Airborne, Angels Against the Sun. And, and that's such a great title because, of course, the sun is Japan and the Angels was the nickname of the 11th Airborne. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, just before we came on air, we were looking at your, your man cave, which, you know, I thought mine was good. But, geez, yours is just absolutely off the radar. It's, it's fantastic. Amazing. It really is. You've got you've got old posters, brick brag stuff, other framed pictures on the wall. There's an eleventh. Oh, look at that! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just tilting your uh, camera so we can see it. I mean, it just looks absolutely amazing. Eleventh airborne helmet, all the kit that any person who's afflicted with this subject of World War Two would be most envious about. But anyway, welcome, um, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, James. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's it's great to be here. And of course, you know, as you guys know, so much of of history is not tactile. So one of the things that I love to do is to, to visit locations and of course, surround myself with things that kind of remind me of the period. And uh, I'm fortunate to have a, a place to, to put some of it. Well, you know what, um, John and I were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago, and I am very much in the same camp. And I know that John is too. Um, 
despite the kind of sterile university walls behind him. You need more stuff and, and helmets. And- it's just my computer is pointing in the wrong direction. You're not looking at my bookcase. Oh, my God. I mean, it's almost like yours, Jim. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> okay, okay. I just haven't had the glimpse of it. But, but I, t- I so agree with you, James, because... I think it is really, it's, I mean, Cracky, on this show, we bang on and on and on about the importance of walking the ground, and, and it just so is. But also, I do think it makes a massive difference being able to kind of hold a garand in your hands and know what it feels like, what it smells like, what it's like to handle and all that kind of stuff. And, and you're right, the, these things that remind you of the, of the era that you're writing about. I'm looking at the moment at a, an Australian style, a Kubra. I'm looking at um, two early war RAF flying helmets and various other stuff. And it's just that little tactile link, isn't it? That's right. It really just helps kind of bring things into focus. And to your point, especially when you're handling a World War II weapon and then you'd you know, then you, as a writer, you add your imagination into that as best you can around what it would take to actually do that under stress, in the dark, in the rain, etc. It just kind of adds to that storytelling. Well, and for this particular topic, too, I mean, you couldn't have any better base point of understanding than to spend a dozen years as a paratrooper yourself um, yep. and to be, you know, to, to be a pathfinder and <laughs> uh, and obviously know the airborne world. And I really do think that it, it comes across in, uh, in in your books, particularly in Angels of the, Against the Sun, of understanding the mindset of the 11th Airborne Division, who these guys were. They're, in a way, they're just your your predecessors. I mean, you're a paratrooper through and through. And, and so you're... You have that base point, but you're also you're like you're like us in, in the sense of being a nerd historian too, who, who loves to immerse in that world. So that's what I loved about the book is that you can kind of bridge that gap that sometimes exists. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know one of the things I remember when I was a, a younger paratrooper, one of the first sergeants in my unit, we happened to be looking at a picture of a Pathfinder stick from the 82nd Airborne going, you know, you know those famous pictures there in front of the C-47s before they were going into Normandy. And he made this offhanded comment. He just said, you know, the names change, but the faces stay the same. And it really was the first kind of time that I realized that I could, with some, you know, humble pride, connect my service to those guys that had actually done the real deal back in back in the 1940s. And that's kind of what started my interest in looking into those forgotten airborne units because all their stories, in my opinion, are are worthy of being told. And some of them, like the 11th Airborne, have very unique experiences. And by unique, I mean, from an airborne perspective, certainly the 11th chewed a lot of the same ground and fought a lot of the same enemy as other, you know, units in the Pacific. So I don't want to take anything away from those experiences. But from when we look at the 11th from an airborne perspective, they were the only airborne division um, on the American side sent to the Pacific theater. And so they do have a lot of interesting uh, experiences that I think are worth remembering. Yeah, I mean, just before we get we get get on a little bit more on the 11th Airborne, how many sort of parachute jobs have you done? I've done seventy four military jumps. Wow, <laughs> which I mean, which frankly is not a lot. I mean, there were guys that had a lot more than I did, but I, I am thrilled to say that one of those jumps was out of a C forty seven into the drop zone near Ranville in mm. uh, two thousand four, if I'm not mistaken. So that was an exciting. Were you kitted out in full British Denison smock, or were you uh, in your normal kit? I was just in my normal kit, but uh, the the stick in front of us was all all de- decked out in the in the Denison smock and the in the helmets and everything. 
Oh, well, that must have been quite a privilege, wasn't it, to land on Ronville? That's exactly how I look at it, Jim. It was a privilege to get to just to, again, that inside. You know, it was funny. We came out over the coast and we're coming back in for the drop. And there was just one Higgins boat coming in as part of the commemoration. But it was just kind of, I was like, okay, there's actually imagine dozens of them. You know, so it was yeah, it was a fascinating yeah, yeah. experience to get to do that. So was that, were you interested in all this first and decided to become a paratrooper? Or did you get interested, you know, during your days as a paratrooper? Uh, a little bit of both. I was certainly familiar with the World War II history at a very high level, high school level type of thing before I enlisted. But it was actually the service of my uncle, who was a paratrooper in Vietnam, that got me interested specifically in that aspect of it. And then when I was at Fort Benning going through jump school, I was 19, 18 years old, rather, didn't have a lot of money, didn't drink, so spent a lot of time on post and went to the the museum there on post one weekend and that's when I started reading about the 17th Airborne Division and the and the jump across the Rhine and it yeah amazing you know hadn't heard of that before and it just kind of stuck with me and so that was as I continued my career and then after I got out and started going deep into learning more about the history I, it was my desire to learn more about the 11th and the 17th that then subsequently inspired me to to write the books about them. Out of curiosity, was your uncle in the 173rd Airborne Brigade? He was actually in the 9th Infantry Division. And so he had, uh, he was what they called a shake and bake back in the day where he had enlisted, <laughs> went through non-commissioned officer school. And I think as part of him going through the NCO Academy, they tacked on jump school. He wasn't actually in a jump unit in the 9th Infantry Division, but he had gone through that and you know, kind of regaled me with all the stories of, of what that was like. That was back when jump school had a yellow a building painted yellow for all the dropouts that had to go, you know, they don't do that anymore, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a big deal back then. James, I think, you know, it'd be great to get you back on to talk about the Rhine, but, but today, I mean, let, let's, let's focus on the 11th Airborne. So John and, and Al and I were having a chat over, um, a few months ago about the 11th Airborne and Corregidor and, and, you know, Joe Swing and stuff, but we kind of touched on it really, rather than kind of going into any any detail. But 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 tell me a little bit more about the Eleventh Airborne, how they come about, how Swing, because he he's the first commander, and he's he's given the job of, of forming them, isn't he? And explain how they got to be. And you were saying earlier on that you know they were a particular, you know they had a particularly unique story. So I mean, it'd be good to, you know, I'm just fascinated by them. I just think it's so interesting that they were doing this amazing stuff in the Philippines and elsewhere and, and kind of, you know, we, we know so little about them. It's crazy. Yeah, well, I think you brought up a, a great point there with Joe Swing kind of forming the the division because that's that's the reality of how it happened. It wasn't a situation where he was assigned to an existing division. The 11th was was one of a handful of divisions that kind of went through basic training all at the same time. Now, there's a slight exception there with the 511th, the Parachute Infantry Regiment, which was formed slightly before the division. But basically, Joe Swing, when he was assigned the commander to form the division in February 1943, really got to put his his stamp on the way the division was trained from, from the very beginning, which I think you'll, you know, as they go into combat, you really see kind of how that unfolds. You know, one of the things I found really fascinating about Swing was he wouldn't fall into the category of what I would call one of the original or the OG airborne guys meaning that you know he was a he was a one-star general in charge of the 82nd infantry's artillery unit when they started converting into uh, the airborne units and so 
he kind of came at it from a very different perspective than, say, James Gavin. And uh, Swing viewed it very much as just a a unique commute into the battlefield. And I think he recognized some of the shortcomings of that early on in the division's training. So I think it's important for everybody to understand one of the big differences between airborne units back in World War II was, you know, that the 11th Airborne had about 8,500 guys in it at full strength compared to a regular infantry division, which was around 14 or 15,000 guys. And so, you know, that manifested itself in different ways. Well, it's because you haven't got all the guff that goes with an ordinary infantry division. You haven't got all the ground stuff. You haven't got the heavy lift or anything like that. You know, the whole point is they're supposed to be kind of like, but also the, um, but the, but the battalions themselves are, are smaller, aren't they? The companies are smaller. Is that right? That's right. The, particularly in the glider infantry regiments, those were uh, smaller units as well. And I think, you know, one of the unique things where I started to really kind of develop an affinity for swing was seeing how in basic training, you know, he was he was known for going around all the staff buildings and making sure that nobody was sitting around doing paperwork while the guys were out in the field training. Because God, if only today was like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Less paperwork. But but James, just go back to Joe Swing because he's a he's a really cool guy, isn't he? I mean, you know, he's on the isn't he on the punitive expedition to Mexico in. 1916 and i think then he goes out of france doesn't he i mean he you know he's in that kind of fairly elite band of second world war generals that has seen action in the first world war that has seen combat action elsewhere such as the punitive expedition to to mexico i mean along with george Patton. i mean he's another on that in that that exalted company so he's you know he's been around the block and he stayed in the army he stayed in the kind of peacetime between the wars army which obviously is tiny and you know quite hard to get get on with and everything but he's he's stood out from the crowd for some reason hasn't he well you know what what is it about him that that's kind of got him into the situation that he's going up the ranks once the once the war breaks out i think it's great that you brought up the the putative expedition into mexico which was 1916 he had graduated from west point as an artillery officer in 1915 so it was one of his first assignments right out of the academy and uh, I feel like that had a tremendous impact on his career and the way he viewed war fighting, because, you know, you can argue about the success of the punitive expedition. But what makes it really interesting from a U.S. Army perspective, it was the first time that the Army was really experimenting with the integration of new technology. So it was the first time they're moving troops with vehicles. They've got motorcycles for, you know, message delivery. They've got some a handful of biplanes that they're using for scouting missions. And so... You know, it's important to remember that when they're doing all this, they don't have any doctrine, they don't have any field manuals because they're in the process of actually trying to figure out how this is all going to work together, right? This is right before the U.S. got involved in World War One, And so Swing becomes at a very early point in his career very comfortable with this idea of improvisation, quickly identifying what's going to work and gravitating towards that quickly as possible in order to be successful, in this case, in the campaign and later in the war, of course, um, in his battles in the Philippines. Um, but he also learned through that experience uh, a number of cautionary tales, which I think you'll appreciate, Jim, given your penchant for the operational art is, you know, with all these with all these trucks and, and everything, you know, they would break down. They didn't have spare parts readily available. They'd run out of fuel. They didn't have gas, you know, at hand. And so Swing saw this as a young lieutenant along with George Patton. And I think you can see that when the 11th gets committed up into the Philippines and that small size could be viewed as a detriment once they're up on Leyte and on Luzon, that you see his his comfort with not only improvisation, but his foresight around supply and logistics that really helps 
propel the division and keeps them punching above their weight. And I think all that kind of comes back to the foundation that he got along the the United States-Mexico border as part of that initial campaign. Well, and career-wise, too, he's he's married Peyton March's daughter. Peyton March is, I think, Army Chief of Staff. And he writes him these fascinating letters during World War II um, that, are, that are in the Swing papers at West Point. So Swing is colorful, but he's also descriptive. He's perceptive, and he's certainly kind of a doctrine geek, too, on some levels as well. And so he's had an influence in uh, uh, sort of the reappraisal airborne operations after the Sicily drop and, and all of this. And, and so I'm curious, James, what do, what do you think about the influence of Peyton March on Swing's outlook as a, as a soldier, I mean, a, as a mentor in a way? Yeah, I think that's a great point, John. He, you know, he worked for Peyton Marsh. That's, of course, when he he was his aide, and that's when he met uh, his daughter and then subsequently married her. And I certainly think that that, you know, as anybody who has exposure to, let's just say, a, a, a next level of leadership or a next level of thinking, it certainly does a great job in propelling you uh, to think in ways that maybe you previously hadn't been exposed to. So I don't think we should underestimate that exposure as well, right? Him, Him not only... Uh, marrying into the family, but also working for uh, the chief of staff certainly provides you with a perspective that you wouldn't normally have as if you were a, you know, a captain or a major in a in an artillery unit. Well, of course, because if you're a junior officer, you know, you, you might be informed about the bigger picture, but really all you're witnessing is this, is the micro, your own little bubble in which you're existing. So the moment you're kind of exposed to high command, your your mind is going to be filled with all the kind of a lot of the of the issues, problems, logistical headaches, all those kind of things, which as a junior officer you're not expected to know about or not expected to kind of think too hard about, suddenly there it is all on a plate. And that's going to inform you tactically on the, your tactical level if you understand that, well, we were talking about earlier on, that operational level on a, on a kind of bigger and strategic level on a kind of bigger, bigger, bigger stage. So you know, it can only help, can't it? And we all know that you know when we when we have ideas about you know historical theories about some of the research we've been doing, when we chat to a well-informed pal, it's really good to kind of you know that helps you evolve your own thoughts, doesn't it? And presumably that's the same thing for him in a way. I mean, you know, he's 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 exposed to that and exposed to Peyton Marsh and that high-level stuff, and of course that's that's going to be a massive help to him, isn't it? Yeah, and I also think that as when the 11th arrived into the Pacific Theater in May of 1944, you know, one of the challenges that Swing had to overcome was this perception of, okay, well, you're an airborne division, you're understaffed, you're under, you know, you don't have nearly as much firepower. You know, you could also make the argument that his exposure to and comfort with speaking at the doctrinal level probably helped him, you know, sell into, for lack of a better word, into MacArthur's staff um, to find a role for the 11th in some cases, particularly in the Luzon yeah. uh, campaign. I think the the Leyte campaign, they were probably more top of mind because they were there and there were so many heavy casualties in Leyte. I think that's why they were probably put in their role on that campaign. But certainly, you know, when you see him working later so well with Eichelberger in the Luzon campaign, that certainly is reflective of a higher higher level of thinking, right, or exposure. I compared uh, Eichelberger and him to peanut butter and jelly. I mean, you, you know, we always hear opposites attract. I think identicals attract, uh, maybe even more. And uh, so this is when the 11th Airborne is put ashore at Nasugbu, uh, south of Manila, to, to kind of come at the, the capital from the south. And it's this really kind of dramatic lightning advance along a 67-mile road. Um, and the other thing I wanted to address it too, you know, the, the composition of the division is different than the 82nd Airborne and 101st. There's two glider infantry regiments versus one parachute regiment, all that. So regardless, Swing uh, has found a, a perfect partner 
in Eichelberger, you know, and they have this incredibly well-managed battle there that I think is, is really overlooked. Uh, it's pretty dramatic, isn't it? There's this 60 some odd mile push for uh, Southern Manila. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the things that, you know, studying the 11th Airborne was fascinating because they don't get any of the benefit that the Airborne divisions do in Europe. So to John, your point about, you know, we see that, you know, in the case of the 82nd or the 101st, before they go into Normandy, they're having additional regiments attached to them in order to kind of overcome some of those inherent size issues. Well, none of that happens in the 11th Airborne's case. They're kind of, they're, they kind of go in with what they've got. And to your point about the Luzon campaign, you know, you've literally got members of the of the headquarters staff, the finance guys, the all carrying ammunition up that 60 mile corridor. And that goes back to Joe Swing's kind of perspective back in basic training that everybody first and foremost was going to be a soldier in his division. You would have to find time to do your administrative stuff on your own. And that really paid off when, you know, the running joke in the Luzon campaign at the headquarters was, yeah, we have a our front is. 400 yards wide and 60 miles deep. And that that wasn't much of an exaggeration, really, as they were punching their way up into Manila. And, you know, along with the Filipino guerrillas, it was really a case of all hands on deck. The division band was carrying ammunition, driving trucks up to get the supplies and keep, keep those logistic trains uh, moving. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Just before we get to kind of, you know, the detail of what they were doing on Luzon, can we just, I've kind of really struck by what you said earlier on, James, about Swing coming at it from a different approach and, and, and training up his own division in his own way, having kind of learned the pitfalls of, of airborne operations. Because one of the things that, you know, we, we talk about a lot on this is, you know, how the airborne arm developed from the Allied point of view and, and how kind of 1943 and 42 you know, they're kind of they're, they're quite hard pills <laughs> you know that you know, and you've got this big problem that you've got these incredibly highly motivated men pretty well trained being delivered by possibly not the best air crew in the world and and you know that's a problem and getting your getting you the, these highly trained highly motivated troops onto the right target is is such a problem and and it's like they everyone's thinking about the end game rather than the kind of sort of you know how to make it work and 
Also, the other point, of course, is is that both the British and the Americans, their airborne arm just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, it starts off quite small and quite, you know, the, the ambitions are kind of quite modest and just sort of balloons and balloons and balloons. And, you know, you look at Sicily, for example, you know, hardly any, what's it, only I think 200 troops land on, on the Piano Lupo or whatever it is, you know, on the first drop. And, and it's, it's not a complete disaster by any stretch of the imagination, you know, because the guys that do get there kind of pretty much do what they need to do. And those who are spread to the four winds actually to achieve other things so it's not a disaster and even the only four british gliders that sort of land anywhere close to the to the landing zone manage to achieve what they need to achieve but you know 69 out of 144 gliders in the sea and all this kind of stuff i mean you know it's an absolute catastrophe on whatever way you look at it but swing of course is involved in husky you know he's involved in the preparation of husky so so what are those lessons because i i still think you know when it comes to the second world war People, you know, the airborne drops that happen, the Allied airborne drops that happen, there's no perfect drop. There's nothing that kind of, you know, there's always something that goes wrong or doesn't quite go as planned. You always feel that it's a kind of sort of airborne operations that are a constant sort of development, a work in progress. So, mm-hmm. what, so what is it from that Swing is bringing to the 11th Airborne that, that I don't know, Maxwell Taylor or, or, or Ridgeway or... I don't know, Windy Gale or whoever it might be is is not bringing to those other airborne divisions? Well, I think there's two two ways to answer that. I think one is, you know, Swing came back from from Sicily with those lessons learned and was was immediately put into the position, as, as John hinted at, around saving the airborne division concept, right? There was a lot of skepticism. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, is, what is his big takeaway? What, what, what is Swing's big takeaway? Is it the inaccuracy of the dropping? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where the Knollwood maneuvers kind of come into play, which was this division size uh, exercise that they seized. I want to say five small airfields in Nebraska, and that you know had the benefit of they tried as much as possible to replicate as complicated a flight plan as they had in Sicily. I think it was a four or five hour flight all told at night to bring in the division all at once. That went pretty successfully. When you look at the division level, though, the main thing that Swing brought back with him from Sicily as it directly impacted the 11th was a lot more training at night and a lot more emphasis on um, assembly assembly of problems. Right, but, but, but training with the air crew that are delivering you to the combat zone. That was some, right, and to a certain degree, though, that's, that's somewhat out of his hands. I mean, that certainly was a lesson learned, I think. Um, okay. But when you say training at night, what 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 is that training? Oh, sorry, uh, a lot of night marches, a lot of night assembly problems, a lot of night assaults, and so it was interesting because again, you see him going around to all his unit commanders at the time, and he's saying, "Hey guys, we're doing these night problems. I don't want to see you training your guys doing stuff that you could do during the day, right? Because I don't want to waste these guys' time. We're going to combat soon." So these guys should have as much free time as time with their families as possible. So we're, we are going to do a lot more night training, but it has to be stuff that benefits from the actual, you know, cover of darkness type of stuff. So he wasn't, you know, they, they weren't doing necessarily a lot of foot marches at night. They were doing a lot of assembly problems and a lot of, you know, assaulting objectives and things like that, where the soldiers are starting to learn how to, who's on their right, who's on their left, how to, how to mo- maneuver through the dark. So it's sort of obvious, basic stuff, really, isn't it? But but so important. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know what's interesting is if you look at the at the airborne mindset, it w- it's interesting to compare and contrast Swing's view of it with Oren Haugen, who was the commander of the Five Eleventh Parachute Infantry Regiment, who very much came up through you know the original kind of army 
paratrooper perspective, he was a company commander in the 501st Parachute Infantry Battalion, which was the U.S.'s first tactical group of, of paratroopers that were very much kind of viewed at the time as like we look at a ranger battalion today, perhaps, right? They were they were independent units, battalion level, very much uh, with this independent streak, kind of not real respectful of the rest of the Army's authority, so to speak, uh, trained to specifically seize airfields, uh, objectives. And so Haugen, who then came up through the ranks, uh, worked for General Gavin for, for a period of time in the 505th, he kind of came at it as this band of elite warrior monks that he was that he was training versus swing who kind of looked at it as like i said just a unique way to kind of get to work and where that that mindset you really see it come together is is swing started a division level jump school while they were in louisiana with the idea that he wanted as many of the division trained uh, to not only you know come in by glider but also come in by parachute in order to kind of give him the flexibility of when he got to his battlefield, whether that be in Europe or the Pacific, to have the ability to deploy his troops as best as the situation warranted. And you know, so he starts this division level jump school, puts Haugen in charge of it. Haugen starts running it just like the four week meat grinder at, at Fort Benning, with a heavy emphasis on physical fitness and, and hazing swing. You know, tells them, no, you're going to run the jump school. You know, it's going to be a five-day long process. These guys have already been through basic training. They're already in shape. Gravity does most of the work. I just want you to to give them the rudimentary skills they need to be comfortable jumping out of an airplane. Uh, Haugen refuses to do it that way, so uh, Swing fires him from running the division-level jump school. Is that a fair enough call? Oh, you know, it's an interesting one. I mean, I'm, a, you know, freely admitting I'm a little biased. I'm a product of the Fort Benning model of, of jumping out of airplanes. I do think it's also fair to say that, you know, uh, gravity does most of the work when you're jumping out of a static line parachute. You know, so I can see both sides of it. But it sounds like Swing's a kind of slightly a man in a hurry. You know, he wants to make sure that, that when these when his, his new division gets into combat, that they're ready. And so you've got to kind of make tough choices because you've got to do the most important things. And and it's all very well spending hours and hours and hours and, and weeks training and jumping out of aircraft. But if you then can't do what you need to do on the ground, then that's all for naught, isn't it? That's right. And again, I think they had different perspectives. I would have, you know, Haugen would have made the argument that he was preparing them for combat by making them better soldiers, by putting them through the toughest training that the army had to offer, would have been Haugen's counter argument to swing. And I think that was the argument that they had. And they infamously, or I should say famously, kind of literally came to a screaming argument over this in the middle of a, a an officer's dinner. And then famously the next morning continued the screaming match in Swing's uh, office. And so Haugen felt very strongly about the fact that the best way to get the division ready for combat was to put them through very difficult training. And that's what's so amazing about it. I mean, they're, they're totally butting heads here. They see it completely differently. Uh, and yet uh, Swing is not going to turn away from putting Haugen in place in the plum job as commander of the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Uh, works with him pretty well in combat. And Haugen is as true to his word and that basically sacrifices his life on the concepts uh, that he that he had trained on. Right. I mean, it's he's right there in combat the the entire time and, and a pretty fiery leader. I just think that's amazing because I, I think more like uh, in the zero defect days, like around now, you know, if a division commander is butting heads with one of his key operational subordinates, that that guy's going to be gone. But not here. You know, so why do why does swing put up with him then? 
You know, I think it's, I th- John, I think that's a great point about the zero defect and kind of how we've kind of gotten away from the fact that you can disagree with each other, but still have mutual respect on, you know, on, on, on many levels. And I think that's kind of, you know, it's, it's regretful that Haugen, uh, well, obviously it was regretful that he was killed in, in combat, but it was also, we kind of lose his side of the story post-war years, right? But it, it, it became very obvious that Swing started off with a very, we could say, skeptical view of, of you know, jump school and, and paratroopers. But to your point, every time that the 11th went into combat, the 511th was was in the vanguard of those campaigns. And I think there was a begrudging respect between those those two. I think Haugen had to have seen uh, Swing's flexibility, his his very, you know, robust comfort level of how to run a division, how to keep things moving in combat. I mean, the, the 11th Airborne Division is not only into Manila, but then after Manila in southern Luzon is just a dizzying example of combat coordination. I mean, he's literally taking battalions and companies from each unit and moving them around to keep things moving and to keep the momentum going. And so I think at some point, you know, Haugen had to recognize that and also, you know, later on understood what Swing was trying to do was not only give himself um, a high degree of or higher percentage of of well-trained men throughout the division, but also increasing the morale across the division, right? So let's not let's not underestimate the the challenges of those glider regiments and and maintaining their morale. These guys were not volunteers. The vast majority of them had never been in an aircraft before. So now their first experience with flying is in a controlled crash in something that's covered in canvas. And so, you know, Swing saw that opportunity there of like, okay, well, let's get these guys uh, parachute qualified as well. Let's, you know, he he liked the morale that he saw within the parachute regiments, right? Or there's no doubting that those guys had an esprit de corps. So what better way to spread that across the entirety of your division? And at the apex of, of the division's jump school, he had 75% of the enlisted men were, were jump qualified and 82% of the the officers were jump qualified. And so, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out as a, as a challenging point to the We Have Ways audience, but it's, uh, I would make the argument that that makes the 11th Airborne Division the most airborne of the airborne units in World War II. I mean, that's a high, incredibly high percentage of, of parachute trained soldiers. And it got to the point to where Swing actually redesignated the 187th and the 188th renaming them para glider infantry regiments as a way to designate their dual their dual capability. I think it all pays off in combat in the sense that this is really a superb light infantry unit. Um on Leyte, they're basically fighting there isn't necessarily a front line. They're 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 going hilltop to hilltop. They're being resupplied by air more than any other division on, on Well that and that's also one and, of the natures of the consequences of fighting in that kind of terrain, isn't it? You know, mountainous, jungly But they fight this way more so than like the seventh infantry division or the ninety six or any other uh, any of the other units involved in the Leyte battle, I think in a way, because you know, they come from an airborne background and they're used to, to being maybe behind enemy lines or whatever. But in this case, it's remarkably similar to what Merrill's Marauders are doing in 1944 in terms of light infantry on deep penetration combat being resupplied by air uh, on Luzon. Now they become this sort of maneuver unit. Uh, You have one parachute drop at Tagaytai Ridge, uh, which is not intense combat or anything, but is important. Um, and as, as you said, James, I mean, they're going to be involved in, in all these kind of hopscotch operations on southern Luzon, plus urban combat in the southern reaches of Manila. And, oh, by the way, a rescue operation, the Los Banos, you know, camp. And 
I mean, so th- to me, whatever the training was, it certainly pays off in terms of the of the effectiveness of the unit for a lot of different kinds of missions. Yeah, and you really see, you know, going back to the light infantry, which I think is is dead on, you know, you see Swing using that unique airborne capability of literally dropping in a platoon of combat engineers and then a company of his paragliders jump in one at a time from the back seat of a light observation aircraft, right? So again, you see that his kind of comfort with changing doctrine as necessary in order to sustain the momentum of, of his campaign. I mean, these guys are literally puttering over the jungle, you know, jumping out of these single engine aircraft. They'd wrap their static lines around the back seat of the plane to, to, to jump in. I mean, God, of all the places, I mean, you know, when you go, when you're flying over Romville or you're flying over, I don't know, some of the drop zones in uh, where the 101st and 82nd are, you know, it might be at night, you might be under fire, but at least it's sort of huge, great fields in which to drop. I mean, it's, 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 it's a slightly different kettle of fish, isn't it, than the Philippines? Yeah, absolutely. The drop zone on Leyte was extremely small. That's why um, Swing dropped in uh, a platoon of combat engineers initially to expand the size of that. And then eventually they managed to get their hands on a, a lone C-47 and dropped in a battery of 75-millimeter howitzers, so four 75-millimeter howitzers up, up in the mountains there, which really helped. Because, again, I think you know, going back to that idea of when you learn about the 11th Airborne campaign, it's really stripped down. And so you know, when those guys go up into the mountains of Leyte, they're really taking on the Japanese you know, toe-to-toe because they don't have the luxury of close air support. They don't have the luxury of calling in heavy artillery from the coast for a combination of reasons, predominantly because their maps were so horrible. They literally had hand-drawn maps of the mountains in Leyte, which were missing entire ridgelines. But then those ridgelines and those hilltops were often covered in, in low clouds. And so calling in close air support wasn't really an option. And as you can imagine, you really want to know where you are on a map before you start calling in heavy artillery. And so that just was very difficult for them to do. So a lot of their fighting up in those up in those mountains was, as John said, you know, light infantry with at the best 81 millimeter mortar in support. But that kind of what I suppose you'd call that asymmetrical warfare, that kind of type of fighting that requires really good squad platoon company commanders who really are prepared. You know, everyone needs to be just completely, you know, the traditional view of, of the bog standard allied platoon is, you know, the six men do all the work and everyone else just follows and tries to keep their head down. There's less room for that in the 11th Airborne or, or, or the 511th when they're, they're operating in those sort of circumstances. So you really do need to be good. And I guess that comes all the way down from the top, doesn't it? But 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 is, is Swing able to kind of, I mean, obviously Haugen's the bee's knees, but even though they have that huge disagreement, but I mean, are the, the unit commanders in the 511th and elsewhere in the 11th Airborne, are they, are they top-notch? And is that is that down to swing, or is that is that just he lucks out, or is it a combination of the two? I think it's a combination of the two, but I'll, I'll speak specifically to the 511th just because I think there's some ready examples there. I think, you know, Haugen in his, in his... And they're the kind of spearhead, aren't they, of the division, let's face it. They're kind of the spearhead, exactly. And, you know, in, in Haugen's West Point yearbook, his peers made note that he was really anti-discipline. And I think that they they got it slightly wrong. I think he was anti-pedantic discipline, but he was very big on field discipline. And, you know, one of the things that he was, he picked up kind of along the way, particularly from his time in the 501st, was that parachute officers were all expected to lead by example and from the front. And Haugen's big thing with all of his junior officers was while they were at Tacoa and then later at at Benning in Louisiana, their whole thing was now is the time for you to earn your men's respect. Once we get into combat, it's too late. 
they have to trust you and they have to respect you in training before you actually get committed to, you know, in a situation where bullets are flying, because if you wait till then, it, it's too late. And so I think that's where you see, you know, so the 511th ran up the famous Mount Curry while they were at Tacoa, just like just like Easy Company did. And one of one of the platoon commanders in the 511th was famous for running up Curry backwards so that he could keep an eye on his men while they were running that that, you know, that little bit of. You see it in Patton, right? That little bit of showboat is a, a critical component of leadership in many t- in many cases, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and and same same thing with Haugen. So I think there was a lot of emphasis on leadership, and and you can also, you know, compliment Swing on that as well, because again, he was the one that was going through and making sure that all of his officers were out in the field training instead of you know hiding back in the in the barracks, as the case may be, to make sure that those those guys were out there leading. Yeah, and, and, and even though he has this kind of falling out of Haugen in terms of jump school. Haugen still commanded the 511th, so he's not like he's firing him, firing him. He's just saying, "I don't want you to do the jump school bit anymore." But that's right, you, you know. And, and, and I mean, that, that's a, I mean, that reflects pretty well, I think, on Joe Swing, doesn't it? Because you know, a lot of people when they have that kind of bust up, that's it. You're, you know, the subordinate is toast and sent off to a completely different division. I don't want to see you ever again. You know, we don't see eye to eye. But, but that's not the case. You know, he goes on and has this. You know, he, he's he's an inspirational leader. He's known as Hard Rock, isn't he? And and you know, he's kind of. My impression is he's he's much he's much loved by his men, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. I think that's I think it is credit to Swing that he was able to see the long game over the short game of recognizing a personality conflict over one topic wasn't going to negate, you know, Haugen's contribution. Um, Haugen had a had a great reputation amongst his men. You know, one of you know, a perfect example is when, you know, the Angels got their nickname because of their as a sarcastic reference to their, you know, often unangelic behavior. But, you know, if we look at uh, the example in Leyte, or I'm sorry, in New Guinea, before they were committed to combat, some of the some of the men had stolen um, from down on the, the docks uh, a shipment of beef. And it had managed to make it back to the division and then had ma- managed to make it only into the officer's mess tent. And swing, uh, I should say, Haugen famously stood up and yelled at all the officers in the mess tent that, you know, I don't care if you steal, but if you don't steal enough for everybody, we're not, you know, we're not going to eat better than the men. And so that just kind of shows his his attitude. And of course, those, you know, that came through in the way he, he treated the men and they had a tremendous respect for his um, perspective. Now, again, the hard rock nickname, I think it's fair to say that some, you know, not, not everybody is beloved, right? So he was uh, strict, you know, he loved to do rucksack marches or foot marches as they were called back then, which, you know, most people hate. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm sure he had his detractors, but overall, I think he, he definitely walked the talk when it came to how to lead a parachute infantry regiment in combat. Well, I think what makes the, the book special is this um, really great convergence of scholarship of uh, personal story i mean there's all these soldiers who who come to life from private obviously all the way up to up to swing it's not a division history where it's like okay this unit went there that unit went here and you know just sort of like dry as dirt kind of thing but it's also not just this kind of oh we're going to rely on latter year oral histories to try and tell you the story and gloss over all sorts of facts so james i wonder in the in the aftermath of the book's publication i imagine it's been an eye-opener for a lot of folks who are really airborne acolytes uh, and we've got that i mean i often joke that um there's so much interest in Band of Brothers and Easy Company that it seems as though we won the war in Europe with one airborne company, <laughs> you know. And so, and I think these guys, especially, I mean, if the 82nd Airborne is lost in that mock, can you imagine these guys? And so, I kind of wonder 
what you've heard from from readers and, and other folks about your 11th Airborne story and, and uh, you know, whether there was any many interesting comments along those lines from people who had been sort of obsessed with the Easy Company. Yeah, I've been fortunate to hear from several of the, the families of veterans who, you know, whose grandfather or dad had hinted at, you know, his experience during the 11th Airborne. So it's always gratifying to hear from from those folks who, you know, who mentioned how, you know, I got a, I got an email the other day from a dad and, and his son, who would be the grandson of the veteran, how this has kind of revitalized, you know, an interest in their family history. And I think that's fantastic. You know, from the from the other perspective of it, I, I was recently at uh, Fort Liberty, which used to be Fort Bragg for an event. And it was interesting how many folks there, you know, kind of the the home of the Airborne, you could argue with the with the 82nd and 18th Airborne Corps being there, um, how many comments I got about folks not under not knowing about the 11th airborne division and in some cases not even knowing that we had airborne units in in the pacific so you know that's gratifying to hear from a different perspective because that's that's obviously also part of my mission is to is to tell those forgotten stories and so um it's helpful to know that that's getting out there and then you know as you as you know the 11th airborne was recently reconstituted up in alaska um, so now the now the Army has two airborne divisions in theory, the 82nd and the 11th up in Alaska. And so I'm hoping that, uh, you know, they're doing a good job of kind of instilling the, the history. The 101st is still there, isn't it? Yeah, but it's air assault. It's not traditional airborne. That's right. Tr- strictly speaking, they're uh, air assault division, although they still have the tab. But um, I mean, I think it's fascinating. Uh, I'm kind of, I, you know, we, we spend so much time kind of talking about kind of the pioneering aspect of, of airborne operations in, in the war and, and its interest. I, I just think it's so fascinating that you've got this only airborne American airborne division kind of operating in the Far East in the war against Japan and just doing things slightly differently and, and coming at it from a different approach. And yet that different approach is obviously partly drawn by the you know different scenario, but it's also drawn from the same early experiences of airborne operations in the war that the European Airborne Divisions are, are, are coming from. I mean, you know, because Wing's there in, until post-Husky. So, y- you know, he, he's, he's got the same grounding as Ridgeway and Maxwell in many ways and, and, and the others, McAuliffe and et al., who are operating in, in Northwest Europe after Husky. And I just think that's so interesting that he's coming at it from this sort of slightly different tack, and yet he's given that that leash to do his own thing and form this division, create it, and train it in the way that he feels is best. And so, although they're all connected in so much that they're all airborne divisions, the eleventh airborne really does stand out, doesn't? Different. Yeah, I think it's it's a great example of you know comparing st- the use of airborne strategically versus taking a capability and understanding how you can use it tactically to keep your division on the move. In a lot of ways, you could make a good argument that kind of foreshadows um, how some of the units in Vietnam fought, right? Using, you know, helicopters um, to bring supplies forward. In the case of Swing, he's he's doing relying on a lot of airdrops, a lot of light observation aircraft to bring his, his troops forward, to bring his wounded out. Um, that was another critical component of the 11th Airborne Division's campaign was, you know, you're, you're up in the middle of nowhere. How do you get your wounded guys out. He actually dropped in. Uh, he he had trained a surgical team on New Guinea in airborne. You know how to parachute. Drops those guys into the middle of the jungle to kind of set up a trauma care as close to the front as possible, and then you know uses his engineers to hack out a, an airfield in order to kind of fly those guys out once they've been stabilized. And so it's 
obviously I have a, a perspective on it after having studied it and written about it, but I do find it just a fascinating campaign. Well, and the other thing too, and this, this is so army, I think is that there's another airborne unit in theater, the 503rd parachute infantry regiment that actually is the one that makes the, the corregidor drop uh, and had made the NADZAB drop. So they got there before the 11th airborne. And you would think like from our perspective is just outside people years later. So, Oh, we'll just put the 503rd into the 11th airborne. They need a parachute infantry regiment anyway. That never happens, and neither side really wanted anything to do with the other. What, so what was up with that? How, why was that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because you're right. That that was kind of the European solution was let's take these independent regiments and attach them either permanently or semi-permanently to the division to kind of make up for those numbers. That did not happen with the 503rd and the, and the 11th Airborne Division. I have not really been able to get conclusively down to any documentation about why that didn't happen other than, you know, Colonel Jones, who was who was in charge of the 503rd, didn't want it to happen. I, I can suspect that part of the reason why it didn't happen was that Swing was adamant that when they ultimately did get another regiment, this was uh, between the time of uh, when they were on Luzon, largely after the island had been more or less uh, secured, and the time that they flew into Okinawa and then subsequently air-landed in Japan, they did get they did send another parachute unit over from the United States, and Swing immediately took that unit, split it up, and used it to populate the rest of his division. Because from his perspective, hey, you know, unlike some of the European units that broke up their glider regiments to kind of to kind of do the same thing from a TO and E change, Swing was like, nope, you guys have fought through two campaigns. You've you've earned your battle streamers. I'm not taking a new unit and keeping them intact. I'm going to split them up so that I can keep the original unit designations within my division as a standing component of the division. And so that might have been part of the hesitancy of the 503rd. They knew that they wouldn't be the 503rd much longer. Yeah. They would have fought that under the death. Uh, That's I mean, right. Absolutely. And, and you know, the other interesting thing, James, I think that uh, Colonel Jones, George Jones, would have butted heads with Haugen big time because uh, if it was one thing Jones believed, it was that, like you said, this is just a way to commute into work, this whole airborne thing. It's not who we are and our identity always, and we don't do it always. So like in the Corregidor, operation yeah i mean his first battalion goes in there and whatever but he's he's very happy to land his subsequent reserve battalion by sea rather than send them into this troubled drop zone that's you know going to lead to a lot of jump injuries haugen would have been like the hell with that we're jumping that's who we are right yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah it's a good point it just as an interesting historical anecdote as an aside um you know the 503rd had lost a lot of their parachutes over their time in the pacific and so for the jump on corregidor they actually had to borrow parachutes from the 11th airborne division in order to get enough to to make the drop so and that's about yeah. as close as they want to get with each other i guess <laughs> that's right i think that's right <laughs> yeah well we talked about the corregidor drop a few a couple of months ago didn't we and that's uh it's, it's, it's an amazing operation it really is but but you know but what the 11th airborne do is it's so impressive, particularly when you consider the terrain, the difficulties, the kind of, you know, the bugs, the lurgies, all the kind of, you know, the, the privations that you have to suffer. I mean, it's, I know it's, it's, it's the same for both sides, but it's, it's, it's overcoming that, isn't it? It's overcoming your enemy and i.e. the Japanese, but it's also kind of overcoming the kind of enemy that this is the terrain and, in which you're we're operating, which is obviously kind of sort of a big point in the book, isn't it? But, uh, but James, while we got you, I'd, I'd love to know your take on, you know, just as an airborne man yourself. Market Garden, you know, <laughs> doomed to fail, worth the punt. 
Yeah, I mean, I just can't let that go, I'm afraid. <laughs> My own view is you got an airborne army, probably wasn't going to work, but it might have worked. You know, you've got lots of motivated men twiddling their thumbs in England. It's for better or for worse, there is an air- allied airborne army. You might as well use it and it might just work. I mean, there's lots of, you know, the dam busters looks like a, you know, the dams rate, for example, that always looks like a, like on paper, that's doomed to fail and yet it doesn't. So, you know, sometimes you got to take a punt on things. That's absolutely right. And I think it was, you know, it was part of the maturing doctrine as to how they were going to use those divisions. So I think that it, it definitely falls within the scope of the original intention of how they were building out division level airborne assets. But I, I'll throw this controversial, perhaps, perspective out about my main man, uh, Jim Gavin. And I know that there's been some, you know, some back and forth around his his responsibility of with seizing the bridge. Take the heights or focus on the bridge. Nye-making. That's yeah. right. So one of the first things I learned as a 18-year-old private in the Army is you can delegate authority, but you cannot delegate responsibility. And so, you know, when you hear the argument about Jim Gavin, if if Browning is his boss and Gavin goes to Browning and says, hey, I want to secure these heights before I secure this bridge, and Browning says, go for it, <laughs> well, that's an example of authority versus responsibility, right? It's still Browning's responsibility as the core commander to figure out what is the primary objectives and responsibilities of his units on the ground. And so I'll throw that out as a counterpoint to some of the more recent perspectives on Gavin. Well, I think that's a, that's a very valid point. And don't forget that Browning hasn't seen that much action. You know, he hasn't seen as much action as Gavin. So, yeah, I'm not, I, think, I think, you know, Browning going in is... is himself and taking up 21 aircraft or whatever it is with his core headquarters is one of the failings of Market Garden in my book. I mean, I, I just don't think he should have gone. And, you know, I can understand why he was itching to do it. But your personal itch that you need to scratch is is not really what it's about. It's about the bigger picture stuff. Well, and I think, you know, if you look at Market Garden as a foreshadowing of, of varsity and the lessons learned in varsity, I think one of the things, and I know John is a fan of, of Ridgeway as, as, as well as I, you know, when Ridgeway decided to go across into varsity, he did not jump. He did not take extraneous aircraft. He crossed, um, you know, amphibiously um, and brought his airborne headquarters with him from, from that way, as opposed to, you know, taking up extra aircraft that, of course, as we all know, the air, you know, there was no such thing as extra aircraft in World War II, right? Just like there were no extra landing craft. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and all of it there, for sure. Fair point. Yeah. Never right. had enough. It was a problem for both sides, though, wasn't it? I mean, the Germans never had enough, enough oh, certainly never had enough transport aircraft, that's for sure. Oh, well, listen, this is fascinating. We, I mean, I, we're a little bit obsessed about airborne operations on this podcast. I know Al will be a little bit sore to have missed out on this conversation. So, so James, you, you know, please come back on again. I would love to have you on and talk about the crossing of the Rhine. But I think, you know, we, I think we should also, you know, next year is, is obviously the 80th anniversary, but, but let's have a meaty chat on Market Garden. Come let's on. Let's do I it. Mean, you know, we have, we have, we've, we've been quite restrained on Market Garden this year. So, we have because I think we're you know building up our ammo for next year. We're definitely building up ammo for next year. It's like a coiled spring. Oh man, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, James, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It's been it's been brilliant to have your perspectives and um, just so endlessly fascinating. And if anyone wants to learn uh, learn more, first book that you get, Angels Against the Sun. It's cracking, all about the Eleventh Airborne, and um, it's a terrific read and a terrific piece of research and a, and a terrific addition to to the genre, frankly. 
and to, to the subject, the bigger, wider subject, not just of the Second World War, but also, you know, what's going on in the Far East and the Pacific War against Japan. I mean, Philippines is just so interesting, isn't it? I mean, yep. I've become really obsessed about the whole thing. I really have. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> anyway thank you all for listening yeah thanks james thanks to john and um see you all very soon cheerio see ya bye